A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point for us would be through chapter 51 of Iron Gold by Pierce Brown. If you haven't heard mention of a zoo in a while, you haven't read far enough. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Absolutely, you should. And we do a great job of it, don't we, Crossland? We do. We do so good at this all the time. Mostly at being a drunk book club, but you know. Last time I didn't drink enough, so this time we're going to fix that. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. All right. So once again, folks, I am carrying you through this podcast. Crossland is going to be basically useless the entire time. So let's go. We're ready. Let's let's go indeed. Uh, today is our eighth episode covering Iron Gold by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle, as PJ mentioned, chapters 44 through 51. I just have to say this, PJ, every time you like lead off that intro with a joke, I'm laughing. And so like I have a hard time jumping into my like, hey there, this is cross intro. And I <laughs> I about lost it this time. I like, wasn't joking. I know, it was but it was funny. True. <laughs> it's, it's just well done. It's just well done. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. First, let's talk about what we're drinking. What are you having today, sir? Well, I am going off of our first actual Patreon poll. So last week we did just kind of the, what liquor should I use? But this time we actually gave cocktails. Um, so I gave the option of whiskey sour, old fashioned, screwdriver, and gin and tonic, I think, and said I would augment it from there. And whiskey sour won. So I went with a blueberry basil whiskey sour. Went with two ounces of rye. An ounce of lemon juice, one ounce of basil simple syrup, which I made a while back, uh, one egg white, and a handful full of uh, just smashed up blueberries. Shook all of that and then served it over a large ice cube with uh, a couple of not smashed blueberries and a uh, basil leaf for garnish. So it is absolutely delicious. I love this flavor combination it, just in general. It Berries and basil. Mwah. Delicious. Love it. And it works really well <clears throat> in the sour. That's interesting. So out of curiosity, this is really just probing your intellect. Is it is it just is it blueberries that goes well with basil, or are you saying any berries? Like my brain goes to like a raspberry cocktail, so I think you'd probably do Yeah. Oh god. Uh I've done strawberry basil a beer before. I've done blackberry basil kombucha. Yeah, I just find basil with different types of berries tends to work well. I think raspberry would probably work, work, work out. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with a sour. I'm assuming that would be fine. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So, what are you following that up with? I've got a crowler from Modest Brewing Company called Double Ooh. Local Dream Mirror. So it is a <laughs> collaboration with Blackstack, Modest, and Fair uh -huh. State. <laughs> it is, so, isn't it? <laughs> all of their, the three of them have. They all have their own. New England mainstay. So Blackstack has local 755, Modest has Dream Yard, and Fair State has Mirror Universe. So they all came together and did 
local dream mirror or they, they all name it differently because they all brewed it separately in their own places. So it's all, all variations of that name, but this is the modest one. Double local dream mirror. Let me, let me take a sip, a little sippy poo. I had it at the brewery, but it's good. I'll, I'll tell you that much, but, um, certainly a lot going on. I think it's almost too much going on. A little bit of restraint would have, would have done them well, but they're mashing up three different beers and putting it into a single beer. So what can you expect? You know, it's still good. Just just a lot to take in all at once. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Interesting that they would choose to all kind of go in on that combination, but I, they're all great breweries. So I think that it's just wild that they would do that in the first place. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What have you got for us today, Mr. Crossland? Well, first off, this is my second episode of five that I'm recording this week in some fashion. Um, so I have some tea that I've been sipping on while you were finishing going through the notes. So I'm finishing that up, but then I have a mojito here, which is pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, we've got some room. We've got some limon, lim, lime, limes. We've got some simple syrup. <laughs> we've got mint. We have club soda for sure. Um, right, which makes so you yourself a nice mojito. Who are you and why has Crossland been replaced with like a Finn? <laughs> <laughs> or a Swede? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I, I can't help Scandinavian. But think of, <laughs> you're right. I can't help but think of like the moose <laughs> moment in yeah. Monty Python with the credits. It's exactly what came to mind. Yeah. I, I For whatever reason, I typed club soda into the, the thing and I threw accents over top of it and I was like, club soda. And I laughed to myself enough where I was like, I'm fucking, oh no, I can disconnect my headphones. I'm doing it for the show. So uh, <laughs> here I am talking into the void. You're not allowed to make a joke. Ha 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 Come back. Too late. Nice. <laughs> shit we yeah, had the clube soda thing i was just like you know what i'm i'm keeping it so here we are <laughs> oh man I like how yeah. you have no idea whether or not i actually did make a joke at your expense right there i genuinely have no clue because <laughs> i pulled <laughs> i pulled the cord out of my headphones on accident so that was great and then to follow it up i am having the exact same thing i had a day ago i mean a week ago double candy which is the double mountain candy from sycamore Again, it's okay. I just didn't have enough time to run out and get a different beer. <laughs> so, hey, it is what it is, right? This was a know, quick turnaround. Like I said, we're drinking more today, so that's the goal. We're yeah. gonna... mm. Yes, we are. Tasty. I only have an 11 a.m. with a lawyer tomorrow. It's going to be fine. Oh, um, that's fine. Not, not for... <laughs> Jesus. Not for any personal reasons. <laughs> for work... <laughs> I just realized how that could come off. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. Okay. So with that, let's go into last week's predictions. We really just have the mini Deadpool to talk about. Yep. So, so my intention, by the way, was for this Deadpool to start and end by this week. So I don't know if you want to adhere to that. I mean, that's up to you. That was my how intention. And I mean, we might as well go by it because I'm mostly wrong. All right. <laughs> I got a couple of key ones. Yeah, you did. So for for sure, we have Cassius is dead and Serafina is alive. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, Cavex is alive. I would say given your con constraints, we can call him alive because he's alive, but might not make it was the way that Niobe put yeah, it. Exactly. So, so that's three for me. Three for you. I said, no, yeah, three for you. I had said the Ash Lord would be dead, Apollonius would be dead, 
Romulus would be alive, I guess. Romulus is alive, so yeah, and and Dido is alive. Yeah, but I said or more no, like Dido. Yeah, right, 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 right. So <laughs> Romulus, I'll, I'll drink for. Okay, so Romulus, there we go. And then I said Dido would be more like Dido. So I've got three to drink. You just drank four. Mm-hmm. I came out ahead on that. You did <laughs> after us, like just concluding to do it this way now for the record, because we we were going to do it entirely differently before the show. And uh, yeah, we redecided on the fly. So there yeah. we go, I, I guess. I mean, it was cumbersome to carry over the Deadpool last book. So, yeah, that's fair. There are only two more episodes after this one, though. You know, it's like we're close. Yeah. All good. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I've gotten I've gotten requests for people to just, like, put out a list of characters for Deadpool for next book. All right. But I'll tackle people it. are like, people are like, we kind of want to know what you think. So we'll see. Anyway, <clears throat> moving into it, let's get into the chapters. So we, we have a lot of ground to cover today. I feel like every time I've said that, we've gone really fast. <laughs> compared to uh compared to other times but and there's times when we're like yeah it should be a quick episode and we go four hours yes yeah, <laughs> it's it makes no sense our, our patterns make no sense okay so with, with that uh chapter 44 we start off with lyria with a quick chapter lion guards so this is kind of the resolution chapter to last last week lyria finds herself her weapon confiscated in the custody of the Republican facing down none other than Holiday T. Nakamura, the intimidating howler she had bumped into before and the one of, of course, that we know and love from the last series and otherwise. She's quickly muzzled and restrained before she's walked from the room. So that that muzzle, though, <laughs> that muzzle, though, is pretty interesting <laughs> and effective. I- Wow, the the idea of like actually like pulling your mouth open and just depressing your tongue so it can't even move mm-hmm. is I uh, terrifying to me. And it we know from later on when she gets it off that it attaches to her gums somehow mm-hmm. because she's like putting her tongue against this the dry spot where the muzzle was attached. The way I imagined it, it was kind of like a I don't know something that. It was almost like a dual-sided mouth guard that had like a balloon that inflated on the inside of the mouth. That's interesting. I thought reverse ball gag. Like as opposed to having the ball gag in your mouth, you've just got the things tearing your mouth apart and then pressing down. Okay. Either way. Not comfortable. (laughs) Similarly bad. Yeah. Yeah. The the reason I thought something a little bit more inflated and more like invasive to the mouth was because she couldn't breathe through her mouth at all hmm. so it's something blocking her like actual like mouth hole because she was like freaking yeah. out yeah and, and that's that's a good point that's holiday why holiday was like, like breathe through breathe through your nose yep exactly okay yeah i mean the the other component that fits that as well as the like armor restraining vest that she had to throw on or like inflated and then turned into armor that was fascinating as well Mm-hmm. just kind of cool stuff you know yeah. very very sci-fi if i could describe this chunk in any way i would say that this feels like the most cyberpunk ish bits that we've gotten especially when we get into ephraim kind of walking around the city in the, the later part but yeah it's um it's pretty cool it all is. around definitely more definitely more more futuristic 
within our own understanding of the world as opposed to a future version of like ancient Rome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because, you know, this series is generally, or especially these second two books are generally considered like a space opera in large part, wherein the first trilogy you might not describe that way. I'm not sure how you'd describe it, but these, where, where I struggle a little bit with the space opera definition is yes, there's this huge theater of war and there's all of these spaceships clashing against each other. There's also, a grounded nature in whatever I think space opera, I think star Wars and that to me, well, you just naturally, you kind of gravitate towards star Wars or a couple of the other uh, big ones that are out there, but this doesn't have as many fantasy elements. And I think more than anything else, Pierce Brown is trying to ground this in reality. And it has done such a good job throughout this book, trying to kind of reframe a lot of the things that might've been distant or not well described and give them, real grounding in real science well not real scientific but explainable definitions that doesn't fully make sense do you understand what i'm saying yeah i think so and then they run after after they get lyria restrained she basically gives her command to run lyria runs confronted by the rain and night once again like we've seen so many times again on mars the previous day when she was running up uh the 90 flights of stairs and she is getting in a mysterious shuttle with a formidable escorts, uh, escort of wardens protecting her from none other than Victra and the Barkas. Mama Bear Victra, right? She she is fearsome. And what was wasn't Victra in a ship though? No, no, no. There there were some rip wings that were taking off after her, but she was flying around in grab boots. Oh yes, you're right. Holiday is sitting there on the shuttle, of course, and it, there's there's relay about the prisoner, about Lyria, and basically Holiday is threatening her and asking her to back down, telling her that you know there's going to be no restraint held against her, and Holiday says, you don't want trouble, and Victor just responds, darling, I am the trouble, and it's just fucking great. It feels like Cruella de Vil yeah. to me a little bit. I don't know, like, and that's not just the the conscious mind moment right now that is Cruella coming out into mm-hmm. uh, theaters, but it feels very, very much of that vein. Right. So they make it uh, to the Citadel after a brief chase with Niobe fully equipped in blue armor, ready for war. I fucking love that visual. Yeah. Just right at the end of the, right at the end of it. So who do you think she's planning on facing off against? Do you think it's against Victor or do you think it's against Lyria and whatever threat she might be posing? Not not knowing who she actually is and what she's been stowing away as on her ship. I think it was I think it was Victor entirely. I think it okay. was mostly a show of force more than anything else just to dissuade them from, you know, fighting each other. And so her showing up is a big serious deal. And as proven in the ne- or not in the next chapter but in the next Lyria chapter she's angry like she is upset and not having a good time well, with uh with what's going on who is having a good time in this entire like section of crossland <laughs> not tharsis that's for sure not tharsis i guess apollonius is kind of Apo- having a good time apollonius is kind of having a good time darrow's having some fun you know a little yep. stressed but you know not not bad um that's fair <laughs> but uh, as far as it goes on luna no one's having a good time on luna <laughs> sad town sad mm-hmm. town right there without a doubt so with that we move into chapter 45 darrow venus 
I love right off the bat the creation of Venus that happens over the course of the first page and a half. It's just absolutely incredible writing and starting to get some of that description and how the worlds are terraformed. We kind of get some of the posts we've heard about the world engines. We've heard about things like that. Um, but to actually get the the reason and sort of the way that things went over time on Mercury is this almost like childhood fairy tale from Darrow's perspective that he's like reading to us to explain Mercury because he's never been there himself. So all he knows is is the history books and what the books have told him. Mm-hmm. It's um, sorry. I've said Mercury. I meant Venus. Yeah, it's. It's fantastic. I love the first the first line that goes into that sort of fairy tale description. Once upon a time, Venus was the evil sister of Earth, swollen from the solar dust to similar shape and size. Like <clears throat> evil sister of Earth is a good descriptor. The sort of personification of the planets and Earth being the I mean the the cradle of humanity, if you want to point it out that way within the within the solar system or of, of of life and venus just being kind of the toxic antithesis cool descriptor i agree and, and also like just to tag into that a little bit the sort of way that he describes also like stealing the helium from jupiter and then using that energy and all of that to create all the water that flooded venus is fantastic like there's there's just so much that actually kind of paints it as, as this interesting like creation myth in a way that Pierce Brown has written here over the page and a half. It it feels like it it feels like a creation myth in the way that Darrow recites it. Mm-hmm. But it's completely human controlled. It's completely just prose. Yeah, I mean that doesn't make it not creation. No, yeah, right, right. I just mean it's it's not it's not a myth, but it's framed like a creation myth. So naturally, I want to talk a little bit about that line that Lys- Alexander, I almost said Lysander, quotes from the Aeneid by Virgil here. So the quote, then, even then, Cassandra's lips unsealed the doom to come, lips by a god's command never to be believed or heeded by the Trojans, which is on page 425. So Cassandra at the time was considered the seer whom was not listened to specifically in regards to the Trojan horse. There was, I believe his name is Lacum. I'm not a hundred percent sure how to pronounce that, but he also was another one of the seers. And I think in the Aeneid, he shot the Trojan horse or was bitten by snakes and killed. I think he shot it with an arrow um, and then was subsequently bit by bit by snakes because the gods foretold that this was going to be the way that fate went. And so people didn't listen to Cassandra, but She foretold, of course, that the horse would be filled with men and told the leaders to consider retreat, but they thought her foolhardy and thought that it was gift, of course, because the beaches were empty and it appeared as though everyone had left. And so she correctly predicted fate and the fates of the Trojan War. There's an implication here specifically, though, as it lies to why Alexander is saying it, where it's we are basically the Trojan horse. And so if if they have their own version of Cassandra, there's this implication that they could also be given away by something else, that they are also carrying someone who could communicate away from them to to give away the ghost, or that they could potentially be the victorious party here. Either way, you can read into that. But, of mm-hmm. course, uh, Rona's your stand-in in this conversation, basically being like, shut the fuck up, Cross, slash yeah, Alexander. Pretty much. Ah, yes, Nilton. Milton. I know. It's like, no, it's not Paradise Lost, you idiot. Like, come on. Not really an idiot. Rona, we love you. (laughs) Well, thank you. As Rona, I appreciate it. (laughs) 
do you? I don't think Rhoda appreciated any of it. <laughs> no, not really. It's a fun historical tie-in, though, as all of these are. But it, it's the least, it's the most direct and also the least gleanable, if that's a term. Agreed. Like, clearly, like they, they are aware of the of the parallels being drawn between that quote and what's happening, but because they're the ones drawing it, they can't actually know what the, what the future holds. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not actually, um, ironic foreshadowing. It's just them reading into what they're doing. Yeah, right. Exactly. So th- there's a, there's a sense of confusion here elicited on our end for sure. And I mean, again, I think that there's also kind of maybe a little bit of a meta commentary going on here from Pierce's perspective, if you think about it, where he's like, I constantly quote all of this like silpsopic shit. And then like another character is just like, fuck you, shut the fuck up, dude. <laughs> and it's, it's a nice like little battering ram that way too, in a meta way from, mm-hmm. uh, from the character's perspective of maybe, maybe it's not that important. Maybe it's more about the story. Get, get some of your other bullshit out of the way. Yeah. Not everything's regurgitated from ancient texts. Yeah, not every plot point, not every everything. So yeah. it's uh, it's an interesting little bit here. I like Dara's little teaching lesson here with Ronan and Alexander as well. I think that it's fantastic. I it's it's interesting because they both kind of get their own lecture regarding why paying attention to briefings is important, and the subsequent comment on Alex needing to not be an asshole is, <laughs> is great. <laughs> it makes you kind of think about the kind of father that Darrow really is to the people he can be a father to. He's, you know, a strategist, not unlike that of Lorne or perhaps a younger Lorne, as we could imagine. And he's got a very, you know, we we never ultimately get to see, at the very least in this book so far, we haven't really gotten to see him be a true consistent father to Pax. And so he's kind of stuck out here and is mentoring people in the capacity that he knows how to. And what's kind of cool to see is that it proves that he could be a really great father. Mm. He understands the nuances of treating different people differently based on their own personalities and what they're thinking and their circumstances. I mean, that's the mark of a great mentor, but also the mark of a great father. He's he's kind of playing that role, even though his his own son doesn't get to benefit from it, which is tragic. And I wonder if that understanding is lost on Darrow at all or if he's really aware of it I think it it might kind of because he doesn't comment on it in the moment it feels like it is kind of a loss or it is kind of lost on Darrow not that he couldn't be a father to Pax just that he isn't and I think he's aware that he isn't being as much of a father as he'd like to to Pax so I guess that's that's interesting doesn't he have doesn't he make commentary on how he wouldn't be a great father anyway though he does say that he doesn't think that he would make a great father, but that doesn't mean that he wouldn't practice because he he's not even trying. Right. That's a good point. Good point. So it's not like our narrators aren't perfect omniscient narrators, so it's not like, you know, we can completely take it at face value. But as fact, I should say we can take it at face value. It's it's interesting to follow up this sort of like lecture on fatherhood and things like that with the subsequent lie to Alexander as well as his reflection on alexander is kind of a proper heir to lorne the the fact that he lies about him like yeah i'd totally go back for you if like we needed to and it just ouch you know yeah but alex believes him but rona knows that that's a lie and i i think this goes back into what we were just saying about him being a, a good father figure in this scenario 
but he's doing what he thinks will produce the best op- operational behavior from <laughs> from Alex. Honestly. That doesn't make a good father, but yes. But he he understands that he can't treat every single person under him the same way because they are individuals and they think differently from each other. And he knows Rona would respect the, no, we've got to do this. This is the mission. You're not above that. Mm-hmm. And Alex needs to hear, yeah, I'd come back for you. That's fair. That's fair. Hmm. Do you think that Alexander makes a good or proper heir apparent to Lorne? I don't know yet. He hasn't really shown his his philosophical side yet at all. Didn't he just quote the Aeneid? Cool, he knows a book. <laughs> <laughs> isn't the point, uh, isn't one of the, the main points of Lorne how he's, uh, he's so much more than just quoting books in situations that they're in. He embodies kind of a, a way of thinking. And maybe... I guess I don't I don't know well enough to to know if Alexander is on the right path for that other than the assertions from Darrow saying that he is. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I I guess like the the thing that I would posit back is obviously he's much younger, right? So there's the whole like with age comes wisdom kind of commentary. So maybe maybe there's some of that, but maybe he just sees flecks of Lorne in him and that's why he believes that he's, you know, the closest thing. Yeah, and I mean, he's obviously of Lorne's blood, so you probably physically see him in his face. It's interesting that Darrow himself doesn't look at himself and realize that he is becoming Lorne, you know? Like, he's never... I I think he did maybe at the very beginning of the book, but he's not Mm -hmm. thinking about it all the time. So, we we move forward with Apple, and Apple is treading on very dangerous ground, talking about Victra the way that he does. What a fucking son of a bitch right yeah it does make me think is he saying all this just to fuck with severo or is he just genuinely accustomed to talking about women like that i think it's both i think that he talks like women he talks about women like that and he knows that talking about her that way is going to fuck with him okay i can i can perfectly accept that I just, I can't believe that Severo held it together and didn't just, like, blow up the bomb in the back of his head right then and there, I to was, be honest. I was curious if something like that was going to happen. Yeah. That's probably why you thought Maybe. about the Deadpool and were like, Apple's going to die right there. This is it. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that he'd actually kill him, but I could have seen just Severo making a show of, like, getting towards the button. Mm-hmm. Not, not that we know what the trigger device is at all, like... That hasn't been Darrow. Darrow says that he is a trigger. Yeah, but but is that like a button on a on a dongle that they carry around? Is it like a switch on the ship? Like how how does that work? We know that it's triggered. We just don't know physically what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Unless I missed it. That's fair. I think he was thumbing the button when they were walking in it at certain points. Like he was he was tight on it. So okay. I, I want to say that it, it was either you could say that that might be embedded in the suit or it might be a physical button. Okay. Not perfectly clear. Gotcha. <clears throat> so far as I recall. So I have to point something out here that I think is is interesting. Darrow here is thinking about the different Valley Wrath brothers and the Wrath brothers, and he's fully aware of Tactus's nature. And I don't feel like it's controversial to point it out whatsoever. He he quotes 
Even Tactus, the most faithful of the brothers, couldn't be trusted farther than you could spit. And I feel like there is no better indictment of the way that I think of Tactus than that. Yeah, I, I can I can agree with that. But at the same time, is this thinking and is this comment strictly in hindsight, looking through the lens of the post box Darrow or just Darrow after after a time of pondering the situations? Like did did he really think of Tactus this way when he was trying to like save him? Oh no, definitely not. Definitely not. With you on that. He definitely did not think of Tactus this way at the moment. Of course not. He believed that there was there's a chance for him. But okay. current Darrow does not believe that there's a chance and understands that there was no way that Tactus was fickle. Right. Which I constantly say and point to yep yep yep, that's it (laughs) i just all i want to do all i want to do here folks is i just want to i want to point my little my little pinky finger at it and be like hey see that that looks like pretty good evidence and then i'm gonna back off and and i'll be done about it for now got in my little bit (laughs) so we're introduced to vorkian here (laughs) Uh, a lieutenant of sorts of the valley wrath family who appears to be incredibly loyal to apollonius of course himself I love the quote that he kind of gives her and sort of the demeanor of the orders and the way that she respects him is really interesting and bizarre in a talked about Star Wars a little bit, but it's in almost an Emperor Palpatine kind of way where it's like, oh, my God, you're back. Like, yeah, of course, I'm going to listen to you or a Darth Vader way where it's like, yes, sir, definitely. Most definitely. And Apollonius says, go ahead. The vibe I got off of it was Lilith and the Jackal. Ooh, similar. Yeah. That's a good call. That's a good comparison. He says, pass the word, take the Ashman to the barracks, douse them with engine grease and light them on fire. Then cut their off their heads and arms and feed them to the crabs. What in the fuck, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The crabs? How big are the crabs? Well, I mean, it's already dead chopped up meat, you know? It doesn't matter Fair. how big the crabs are. I think it would have been better if they were fed to the crabs alive. <laughs> but, you know, death by crabs is something to be something without to arms, for. like fed to the crabs without arms. Yeah. And with a uh, burny flesh. Does this not seem like some Ramsey Bolton shit? Oh, absolutely. Except, <laughs> like, no, it's too fast of a death for Ramsey Bolton. Well, Agreed. Maybe Tharsis is more in the line of Ramsey Bolton than Apple is, but I think of kind of the way that he commands respect. I guess Ramsey doesn't really command the, again, TV show basing this, because I have to clarify that, otherwise I'm going to get a multi-paragraph essay about misconceptions. Love you, Tim. See, what I in this scenario, I think what Ramsey Bolton would do is take them and draw like circles of engine grease all the way up their arm. And then light the first one so it slowly, like a cigarette, moves its way, the fire moves its way up the arm. Mm. I think I think that's how it would go. And you'd also do it personally. That's also why I think it would be that Ramsey is maybe more adequately compared to Tharsis, considering yeah, he's considered the torturer and the vampire of Thessalonica and whatnot. Boiling people. <laughs> yeah, boiling people for sure is a dead giveaway. <laughs> dead giveaway. 
So we move on from that to an interesting uh, poolside scene, of course, with uh, Tharsis just kind of relaxing, chilling with his concubines, hanging out with some golds and some pinks, uh, doing Maxin, laps in the pool. Relaxing out by the pool. <laughs> just, you know, like just pre-orgy. Like that's that's what's going on here. Pre and, or post uh, or in the midst of, it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's very hard to tell, especially considering the like little wine bit that was there. That was yeah, it's, it was weird. <laughs> it's it's weird, but it's it's well written, and it's just like you know that this army, this like squad, this hit squad is just lurking outside, like just watching this, and you're like, huh? Why are you watching, guys? <laughs> like, why are you doing something? But I think they were just kind of letting him, you know, be distracted. It's it's an interesting scene, nonetheless. But then they walk over, they have their little confrontation. Apple reveals himself, and. uh darrow fucking opens fire on everyone and it's just a fucking blood bath blood bath blood bath blood bath the way this is described is so much colder with like with darrow with a gun this is kind of the first real descriptive moment we've gotten with like darrow really kind of taking charge with a gun as opposed to a razor and it's it's brutal and it's cold it's really really cool i i'm sure there are other scenarios where it's talked where it's described of darrow shooting people but like not like this i feel like no not at all like this and i think that's what's so what's so shocking i don't think that we've we've seen have we seen anything since then the only other moment that we've seen where someone has been killed i think in this book by darrow is wolfgar yeah Right? Like, it's just Wolfgar, and now it's these folks, and it paints a very violent, violently changed Darrow. One that, you know, like like we said, we've only seen Wolfgar, and he was regretful, mournful about Wolfgar, because he was an ally. Mm-hmm. But, Jesus. Like, war is different. Yeah. It's Darrow is it. different here. Yeah. Calloused, truly. But love, it was still uh, fucking loves- cool like yeah that that doesn't mean it's not cool it's i'm just it's it's, it's <laughs> i wouldn't Darrow, have it you know? any other way you just kind of you kind of want darrow to be your wholesome good guy but he's um mm, no you, you know? don't i don't think you really Look, want darrow to be the wholesome good guy like you you, you want him to be a little brutal but now he's kind of like the terminator <laughs> yeah isn't that awesome <laughs> it's it's very sweet but you're also like oh darrow you're kind of not not a really good guy <laughs> like, oh no oh no oh no dude <laughs> Oh, no. Um, do you have anything else to say about this chapter before we jump into the next one? No, I just want to reiterate how cool it was to see Darrow just fucking explode people's heads with the, like, just without care. Last, last comment for me on this. This whole scene, actually, the end of the scene, actually, the entire scene lends itself very easily to adaptation. You can imagine exactly the way that these golds are defending themselves, some charging at them, some just raising their hands in defense as they're shot through the hands and through the head, exploding out the back. You can imagine the pinks wandering away because they recognize what's about to happen, and some of them even offering kind of vague support, understanding who this is and what's going on. It's fascinating. Yeah. And it's also what what I would actually more like what I would imagine a futuristic war scenario to be like, as opposed to with the razors, which is cool, but guns are so much more practical in scenarios like this, you know, or it seem like they yes. should be, they seem yeah, like they of should course. be 
Like this, this right. makes more sense in my mind when I think about a futuristic hit squad. Right. This isn't about honor and Darrow doesn't treat it with any kind of honor. Old Darrow might have given them the chance. I think old Darrow, Darrow probably would have tried to save all of them. Correct. Yeah, entirely. Would have given them either an out to go run away or otherwise. But this is this is a changed Darrow. Yeah. Old Darrow, I don't and, think, would have trusted himself enough to uh, to break Apollonius out like he did. No, no way. No way in hell. There's there there are varying layers of confidence that have came with Darrow with the ten years of experience that he has now, and yeah, he's very confident in this plan. Right. So with that, we move into chapter forty six. Darrow, the brothers' wrath, W R A T H, of course, versus uh, you know, the regular spelling of R A T H. It's it's interesting the because regular this spelling is, of wrath. Well, the regular the regular spelling is we're used to in the book, dude. <laughs> okay. Give me a break. The pro. The proper noun. <laughs> what do you... I mean, obviously, the title here is very fitting for the way that the chapter goes, because it's a fucking nightmare to read. It's... I, I don't know what you get out of this, but every time I read this chapter, it is just stressful from Apollonius's perspective of just absolute paranoia. I just... I don't even know how, how to describe it. It's stress. Yeah. It's pressure. Yeah, it's, it's intense whole lot of intensity yeah but just ah man unsettling stress really unsettling unnervingly complex in its like unpredictability i guess oh absolutely that's there's a lot there talking about tharsis though what a fucking pixie right (laughs) like jesus yeah. You know, we've we've met all three of the brothers now to a fuller extent. We can kind of get a picture of all of their characters. What do you think of the brothers' wrath? So, I think the only one that anybody should really be scared of, comparatively to all the others, is Apollonius. Like, the other two are fucking bitches, comparatively. <laughs> that said, they're all obviously really capable in their own right. And that just is a testament to how ridiculous Apollonius is, you know? Without a doubt. I I guess I kind of, of course, Apollonius is just so ridiculous and just he's he turns into 11 as far as characters go in a lot of different ways. I, I think what's so interesting is that Apollonius is a fan favorite, of course. Maybe maybe not, of course, for you. But part of part of like Pierce Brown's mentality when he thinks about Apple is he's like, I just basically have permission to be as ridiculous as I want because his character is so believably self-obsessed and fascinating in that way where he just kind of gets to do whatever he wants. But it also fits kind of the hedonistic tendencies of the Brothers Wrath. However, Apple is kind of this reformed dude is also weird. It's just bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I kind of want to I want to pull you back to Tactus for a second and talk about him a little bit. How do you imagine Tactus would be 10 years later? Besides dead and <laughs> in the ground, if you're I mean, alive. He's a, kind of a puddle at this point, right? That's just how... <laughs> Correct. How things go. Matter works. 10 years later, if... In what scenario? If he didn't die at Lauren's hand. If he didn't die at Lauren's hand and Darrow was able to convert him. He sticks with him, yeah. Sticks we'll, we'll with Darrow. 
I think he probably ends up very close with Mustang and mm. works very closely with the Senate and distances himself a little bit from the Howlers. Interesting. So let's say, let's just, let's extrapolate that a little bit. Let's put him in this scene with his brothers. How does he fit in to this trio? I mean, he's obviously the youngest brother, right? I think he's probably mostly timid in comparison around those two, just based on how they've been raised. But given 10 years of working alongside Darrow and Severo and the Republic and everything, I think he probably steps up and takes control of the situation a little bit and acts as almost a mediator. Hmm. Comes into his own confidence a little bit more. I've always felt like his brothers would talk him down to a point where he would just shut up and would have to have someone else like step in for him. That's what I'm saying is he, he'd be Got timid it. normally, but I think given 10 years of kind of helping lead positive. a rebellion and lead a new society Republic, I think, I think he'd come into his own as far as confidence goes. Okay. Okay. Just curious. Any other thoughts on Tharsis as the piece of shit? sits there on the ground not necessarily of tharsis but of apple i think it's false um forgiveness and false um understanding absolution i think oh that come Thars- up, that come up he's giving tharsis yeah yeah i think there there will be there will be revenge for not getting him out i i think it's interesting i think i kind of agree with you but I think that the revenge, I, I don't think he's going to kill the dude, right? I don't oh, think he's going to ruin no. him. I think he probably wants him to have kids because, like you said, they're the last two. But I, I definitely think there's some kind of something coming. And I think that's also why he didn't stop Severo from cutting off his ear, right? Yeah. Though that was it's, a pretty swift little movement mid-conversation. Right. right, but Tactus didn't move. He just stood there, right? Because Darrow's at the ready Apollonius to prevent seemed- him. Sorry. Yeah, Apollonius didn't move jesus yeah but yes apollonius didn't move and darrow was just standing there at the ready to prevent anything in case it happened so i mean he's 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 acting like apollonius was in the in the jail cell yeah true the whole scene of the interrogation with tharsis from several several liberating him of his ear as we've mentioned to apollonius apollonius's rage to the calm of brushing tharsis's hair all of that is just excellent mastery of tension from a writing perspective but also how insane do you actually think apollonius is i don't think he's insane at all i think he is perfectly sane i think he is (laughs) twisted i think he maybe has some dark views on things but i i don't think he is out of his mind at all he's cold and he's calculating and i i think he's plotting very much and very explicitly throughout this entire thing. He's he's not letting anything get past him, even if he seems to be really cool about Tharsis just kind of indulging himself in the pool while, while his brother rots in the cell, as far as he knows. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's... I think he's cold, but I don't think he's insane. Does that make sense? Is that is that a worthwhile like distinction between the two? Yeah, I I think it is, and I think that it's interesting because, especially the reason that I asked the question to a varying degree is because 
the way that he addresses it when he's called mad or when he, when Thorsis even says that mother deemed you mad, the way that he reacts and responds to that the two different times that it happens feels very uh, Joker-esque. I, I think I said this before, but in the way where he's like, no, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. He's kind of like beating it out of himself as though he's misunderstood. And I think that kind of fits into your theory here that he is he is twisted, but he's not actually insane. He's misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously that's a pain point for him. Like that that is mm-hmm. a pressure point of being called crazy or mad or insane or whatever is not something he enjoys. I will say that I think that that line is thin between twisted and insane or mad, but I I can see where you land on that side of things here. Yeah, it, it's I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly how to word the distinction. But I, I don't think his mind is altered at all. I think he, um, I think he's apathetic, and I, I think he has a very specific view on what needs to what needs to get done. But I, I don't think there's anything illogical going on in his mind when he's uh, making decisions. Okay. All right. I can I can dig. I understand. Mm-hmm. This is not me defending him, by the way. No, right, right. I'm not. I'm not counting any of this as a defense, for the record. Um, it's more just a, an attempt to understand or peel back the way that he's written, the way the character is. Right. So I get that. We end this short chapter of wrath surrounding the brothers Valley Wrath with an understanding that Darrow, Several, and Severo, and Apple will invade the Gorgon Isles with the army of the Wraths. Yeah. Yeah. The army of the wraths that's going to be, I'm, I'm worried for Darrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Why are you worried? Uh, because if, first of all, I don't trust him. I don't trust the wraths at all. I know Apollonius kind of has to be held in check because of his brain implant, but I think he probably has a squirmy way of getting out of that consequence anyway but tharsis seemed to be a little bit too submissive for Hmm. what i understood and i'm wondering if that's all an act that's interesting so there there are two components that i want to mention here one talking back to the thing that you're saying with tharsis jesus i almost said catharsis wow i will speak for the rest of this podcast so tharsis is kind of described as soft, though. He's described with, like, having lost a lot of the muscle and just arms and legs and having a soft punch. And so it feels like he's kind of receded in a way. It, it doesn't mention his mental state, though. Like This is the man that boiled people. This is the man that did horrible things to the point where Apollonius had to deflect and say, no, that was, th- that was Tharsis. That's fair. He was just a torturer, though. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you're you're adding suspicion there. I, I just think it's worth pointing out that I, it feels as though he's gone a little bit soft since yeah. Apollonius has been gone. And on top of that, he was expecting more from the Ash Lord and didn't get anything out of the trade of his brother, basically, for position. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And I, I think that makes sense. I'm just I'm ever suspicious of the very intelligent people in this book series. <laughs> Like Dido. <laughs> yeah. Dino. <laughs> Dino. Dido. 
Ditto. The the one other thing I wanted to mention here that I actually didn't put in the notes is they do say that no one has had a theater. No one has been in front of the Ash Lord for almost three years. No one's been able to talk with him. What do you make of that? <sighs> Much like Kim Jong Il, he's been <laughs> dead this whole time, and it's his son oh. that's <laughs> that's secretly behind <laughs> behind the wheel. Um. Was that ever confirmed, by the way, that like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't, I don't think anyone's really figured that out, but <laughs> okay, it feels like that's right. I think the Ash Lord is rightfully being as cautious as he can about who he lets in. So I'd be surprised if he is in total isolation, but he has his people that he trusts and like Atlantia, Atlantia. Yeah. And any other communication can be done remotely. Why okay. fuck around with having people on your on your land if most people want you dead? You know, I never thought about it that way. Really? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I definitely have thought about it that way. Okay, uh, I was going to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> obviously, it's a good way to keep the spies out is to ensure that no one can fly within 200 kilometers of your island. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus, that's intense, especially for how small of a planet Venus is. Like, holy shit, dude. Mm -hmm. It's it's quite a bit. So chapter 47, Lysander, Teeth and Tears. Yes. Lysander, panicking over the state that Cassius is in, demands a trade. Cassius's life for the safe. Dido bends, but Diomedes intervenes, saying that the Olympic surgeons will take... Dido bends, I should say, to his asks and is willing to help Cassius out, but Dido Diomedes intervenes and lets the Olympic surgeons take over instead because he trusts them and doesn't trust necessarily what his mom is doing, which makes a lot of sense given their inter-character conflict. Yeah. What did you make of Lysander's decision here to open the safe? I I mean, everything that was important as far as we understood in the safe has already been revealed, you know? Like the as we mentioned before, and I was suspicious of this, I was thinking there was more in there, but there, the, the main value of that safe was their true identities. And with both of them already revealed, what is there to hide? And I think Lysander was also simultaneously pretty curious about what Seraphine had hidden inside of his razor hilt. Yeah. I mean, of course I, the, there's an assumption that Serafina knew what was in the razor hilt the whole time, right? It's not so much that Lysander hid it away. No, no, no. What, what Serafina hid in the hilt, the, the um, hollow vid thing. Co- correct. So who are you saying was curious? I thought you were saying that I, Serafina I saying didn't know what Lysander, she hid. And I was like... Lysander was curious about what Serafina uh, hid in his hilt. Okay, okay, got it, got it. Lysander was curious. I, I heard it, and I was like, Serafina knew what she put into the hilt? Yeah, uh, I, I may have misspoke. I'm, I apologize if I did. It's okay. We're drinking. It's, it's yeah. the way the podcast goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's an obvious curiosity there, and Lysander also needs to verify his identity, otherwise he's going to get in trouble, right? Uh, that too by getting in trouble i mean like probably getting murdered um for Mur- claiming that he's a loon Mur- he also dark. like has to worry about getting murdered if he is proven to be who he says he is so <laughs> correct 
<laughs> which uh, Diomedes immediately recognizes too, which is is fantastic. Diomedes clearly being an ally to Lysander off the bat, and also being just generally a pretty honorable guy. I mean, he's an Olympic knight, right? That's what the and and right. the rim seems to be a lot more steeped in tra- in tradition, even though Dido doesn't seem to give the give any sort of shit about the fact that they're guests traditionalists yeah 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 very very true man it's it's an interesting thing of course here when when the safe opens everything shifts pretty dramatically dido gives a speech to the moon lords making her case for why she had to do what she did and what she's done sending her daughter out past the paxillium line and how they how both her and romulus should stand trial for what has gone on here and have the this Olympic trial kind of determine who's in right and who's in wrong. She gets the go-ahead from the head Olympic knight, Helios, to continue with her story, of course. And we discover, for the first time, that Darrow didn't just destroy a shipyard with hundreds of thousands of low colors on it, but he also, inadvertently, that, that shipyard fell on new troy and killed 10 million people when the docks fell to the planet a substantial number that's a whole lot of people darrow's responsible for his soldiers deaths he's responsible for war deaths but this is like a civilian war crime by all accounts yeah yep maybe maybe he was hoping all of do you think he knew do you think he knew that would happen no but just because you don't know doesn't mean you can't be shouldn't be held in account i mean it's like 10 million counts of manslaughter at best right <laughs> i think you, once you pass like 10 you <laughs> enter into a weird category where it's like that's a lot dude <laughs> i don't think you call it manslaughter what? at that point all right so we've got murder to manslaughter what is what is the manslaughter version of genocide <laughs> oh no <laughs> My brain just wanted to say like a mano side, but I hate that. <laughs> like anyway, we're we're gonna we're gonna let that one lie right where it is. Fair but enough. It's it is it is a terrible realization what Darrow has done. And only a handful of people, of course, know now more know now that this will continue to spread through the rim, of course. Um Yeah, cats yeah, out of the bag I, on that one. Right, right. I. What do you think will happen? This actually isn't even a question here. What do you think will happen when it gets to the Republic? Oh, he's he better be happy that he's already on the run. <laughs> <laughs> like he is, uh, he's kind of fucked. Yeah, kind of fucked. I think. Right. I mean, like, Dancer's aware of the the actions already we know from the beginning of this book, right? He's aware of what happened at, at Ganymede. And so, while he's definitely fucked, he's, it's only going to be worse when the mob comes after him versus the individuals who can parse out reasoning. Yeah. Dancer already knows what happened at Ganymede, but he doesn't really know what happened at Ganymede, given this right. new information. Like, do, do you think there is any forgiveness on the part of Dancer towards Darrow. I think Dancer has the capability of forgiving Darrow personally, but I think from a government governmental society perspective, he is unable to because he represents so many people. So I, I think that while he personally can, he also needs to hold him in account for 
the impact that he makes on so many people's lives. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a tough line to delineate, but it's, it's an important one. I think Mm -hmm. this war crimes, this war crimes, a big deal. I mean, all told to me at the very least in my head, it's like, I have a hard time, like loved arrow, but from, from this moment when it's revealed that he killed this many people from this one action at the end of Morningstar, it kind of colors that book a little bit differently for me, which is also why, like, during those episodes, I, I, in, I, without saying it, I also wanted to speak my case about why it was such a big deal when we were talking with Hallerpod about this, because it's striking. Anyway. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to uh, reapproach any sort of conversation with the Hallerpod people after I'm done with all this, because I think... I think we could have a lot more real fun conversations that I know they had to kind of hold their tongue last, last time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it will be a good time on their return episode. So that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. It'll be good. So there's something here that I want to bring up as well. Dido cites a white in the Ophion guild who passes the information on to her about the existence of this teardrop of this existence of this hollow tear and this knowledge and information where it needs to be received. The only other information about the Ophian guild that we have is that earlier Oslo was defined as a member. He was an, he was the arbiter for Ephraim. He was the one who was giving him the money and paying it out at the beginning of this book. What do you make of the Ophian guild and their kind of connection here? We know that Oslo is also a member of the relaying information intentionally to the syndicate Ephraim later in this chapter even is saying don't use the Ophian Guild. They're connected with the Syndicate. What do you think that that means for the larger situation regarding the Rim's involvement in the war? And who, who do you think is pulling these strings? I mean, I hadn't really made the connection at all. Hadn't hadn't crossed my mind in the slightest. Didn't understand that there was a connection. Still don't quite understand what the Ophian Guild does, but that's neither here nor there. I think it... They're like... The Whites are lawyers for the most part. They're like religious plus lawyers. Okay. Gotcha. And it it is a specific guild of lawyers then? Yes. Okay. Because we know of the Ophian and the Imani. as two examples. But clearly it, it... make some implications of the syndicate working with the rim. And, uh, it gives me a little bit of a strange idea of what's going on. And, uh, is Dido the queen? Is Dido the queen? That's interesting. Hmm. She seems like the kind of person that would grab at power like that. Okay. I don't know. And, and work through the whites. That's an interesting supposition. Um, I'm going to move on because... Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I both have no more information and want to make no further comment. So, <laughs> uh, But it, it, it is an interesting thing to ponder and think about, especially in relation to the queen. It makes That makes the most sense, so it's good that you brought that up. Then we see something from a different perspective that we've witnessed before, but no one in this room knows. The destruction of the dockyards of Ganymede at the hands of the Reaper. Lysander thinks something particularly poignant that I wanted to met out as well with a, between the two of us. As the destruction reigns, the Reapers, 
turns from the viewport, his face a death mask of grief and pain, and I f- feel as if I hear his heart beat across the years, across the space, and know how far he's come from the man he wanted to be. He reminds me of my godfather. <sighs> yep, that's pretty chilling. I think it's also important to note, this is the space in the book where Lysander talks about how Darrow, it was almost impressive that Darrow had gotten this far by the age of 23, right? Something like that. I think that's in the same passage. Am I wrong? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Okay. So there's, there's this air of admiration from Lysander towards Darrow and his accomplishments, even though he doesn't necessarily agree with what, what the actions were. But he he understands nonetheless how impressive all of it was and how capable Darrow was back then to have achieved all of that. It was, I mean, a cool look from from Lysander's perspective in not necessarily support of, but in awe of Darrow. Yeah, absolutely. And it also leads Lysander to this conclusion that in order to protect mankind, Darrow has to die. And this becomes his new mission now. Yeah. Yeah. It is. uh, It's no longer revenge, you know? Yeah, it's. But it's also revenge. It's no longer strictly revenge. Revenge is a bonus, but yes. (laughs) Bonus revenge. Bonus revenge. Given what Lysander has seen and what is what he's currently seeing and everything that he knows about Darrow, like it's a pretty easy conclusion to come to that he must die. But for us at least, having him solidify that is 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 a pretty big significant moment. Like it, it, he had never explicitly said that he had to kill Darrow until now he always kind of spoke vaguely i guess and said that something had to be done yeah he he was very vague about it and that's why i think that it's so important to clarify that he thinks about it as kind of protecting mankind protecting the future darrow has to die and that's why i think that that's it's a little bit more than revenge at that point and like you said it's something that he's been mulling around with he's been trying to figure out how to undo what the reaper's done he finally comes to this conclusion now right yeah, it's it's definitely uh you gotta watch your back, Darrow. He's coming for you. He's gonna fuck you up, dude. <laughs> to end the chapter, we find out in a resounding thunder that the rim agrees. The Paxilium is broken and that the rim is going to war as they all shout and raise their razors after the Olympic Knights do so. I find it interesting that Diomedes only raises his a little bit, and he's not into this idea. That's yeah. worth a little bit of a note. Um, any other thoughts? I mean, there's the the point right at the end of the chapter where Serafina seems to be declaring war directly to Lysander, so that's concerning, I think, a little bit. It is interesting because they're both kind of... Well, Serafina isn't like an heir apparent or anything like that. She's not next in the line to be sovereign. And I'm sure the Rim Lords would actually probably elect someone as opposed to just handing down the crown. You mean like what's supposed but, to happen? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in, in that vein, right, who would have thought? Ridiculous. In that vein, though, 
that war that she's declaring feels as though it's one against one still that is against the idea of the core leading things, you know, like she's, she's declaring that privately in a way in which that their views are still kind of in counterance of each other, or at least she thinks they are because she doesn't really know who Lysander is, who or what he, he wants to represent as far as it goes from the core. Yeah. Did you make anything of uh Diomedes half, half raising his razor i mean he's he's been at odds with his mother's actions the entire time so i think it makes sense he's a little obstinate towards declaring war and ending a peacetime agreement like that's that's a little bit of a of a dramatic change to to be done in an afternoon so true (laughs) yeah but don't all revolutions happen in an afternoon pj I think explicitly they don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think very clearly they take longer than that. Right. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> With that, we move into uh, chapter 48, which is another Lysander chapter titled The Boy and the Night. Of course, our boy and tonight are Lysander and Cassius here. Or you could actually maybe flip that around, depending on the way that you think about these two characters throughout this this moment because Lysander's very uh, smart for who he is right very intelligent at a young age yeah but he's not a knight no but he is he kind of is now i mean he's not literally the knight but i think it's in, i think cassius is the only one you can really call a knight between the two of them fine we won't <laughs> refer to lysander as a knight that's fine he doesn't deserve it anyway lysander's chapters though in general are met with kind of a consistent refrain i think one that's repeated here with diomedes at the end of the first page into the second page speaking about cassius he says but if he dies you'll be free of him then what will you be bound to lunan and what do you see for lysander here what choice is he going to to make now that he has this kind of freedom this this burden is lifted off of his shoulder from his liberation from Cassius and all of the other different things that he thought were holding him back in the past. I mean, based on the entire book so far, if he hadn't been kind of tied to he and Cassius's kind of outlaw lifestyle, it seems like he would have taken action against Darrow. Mm-hmm. And now he kind of has that opportunity. So I think that's uh, I think that's the path he'll probably make his way down. Now that now that he doesn't have anything holding him back from it. Totally. Hmm. There's absolutely nothing holding him back or in his way anymore. And so he is able to pursue kind of with a with a freedom that he didn't have. Like I said, kind of the lifting of the burden, lifting of the weights. Do you think that this is going to change him? Slightly. I think we we have seen kind of an internal Lysander through this whole thing that was a little bit at odds with with Cassius, but hadn't really voiced any opinions on it very, very much. And I don't think we'll so much see the, uh, the secret internal monologue as much as actual action that follows it. Okay. All right. Our next scene is one of internal reflection. (laughs) One that begins with Lysander walking. (laughs) It's, it's just perfect. He doesn't know Cassius is dead yet. Correct, correct. But it is it is a scene of internal reflection where Lysander is walking his way uh, mentally through the Willow Way, which I think is interesting. 
in its own right, where obviously he's been kind of acquiring the will away through Cassius. But it's it's a moment from Lysander's youth with Cassius meeting him when he was much younger, before Darrow was revealed and was known only as Andromedus. It's an excellent section and one that reflects the time after the Institute, but before the Triumph. What do you make of this whole kind of inserted scene that we get here from Lysander's perspective? So, first of all, it was kind of nice to see Lysander as a young boy again, because it's it's really impressive to see, first of all, his intelligence just shining through as a child. He's 10 years old and smarter than I am. But also being able to see the world through Octavia's eyes a little bit again, which kind of gets lost when Octavia has been dead for a decade. It, it, it makes you kind of realize that Lysander was almost a wonderkin and he, he's still oh, yeah. intelligence now. Like he's still intelligent now, but he's kind of grown out of that and he's not heralded as the super intelligent person anymore, which seems to kind of have been his personality back then because that's all anybody talked about. Wow. So you just actually like opened up something for me. He's like all the kids in high school that were AP kids who amount to nothing. Like me. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> but you know, we're like, it, it completely defines someone's personality that they were in advanced classes or what have you. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, like, what is he, what does he have now? He's still smart, but he's not that much smarter than everyone else. True. True. Cassius recants this line to him that I think that is really important. And, and of course, Lysander is steeped in quotes and musings, I'm sure, especially at eight years old. Uh, Using the claw of others is not brave, nor is it the same as having claws. I would have thought you of all people would know that. It's interesting because it comes from a moment where he's kind of threatening back at him, saying like, well, Aja would take care of that or Aja will take care of you. And I find it a really interesting thing to come from Cassius to Lysander because one might say that Octavia suffered from that very flaw, which is to say that she herself, so far as we know, wasn't an excellent razor wielder, but was a master manipulator of her own power and political gain. Well, everything else that she's done has been a matter of using her own type of claw, not a physical claw, but otherwise. Mm -hmm. Is it... Does that mean that Cassius's quote itself might be flawed because it's not taking into consideration having power over people and being able to order them to do things? Or is he advising Lysander in a different way, saying you need to take kind of take your own fate in your own hands kind of a thing? I mean, I I think it's simultaneously neither and both, if that okay. makes sense. I think yeah. what he's explicitly referring to is... Lysander calling out or saying that he'll he'll basically just call Aja in here to take care of it for him. And mm-hmm. this this is I, I don't think that anyone would argue that Octavia didn't have claws because she didn't fight physically on her own. And I, I don't think Cassius believed that either. I think he understood and probably at least respected the strength that Octavia had and wielded whether or not he agreed with it but right i'm not i'm not saying that cassius is saying that about octavia i'm saying that extracting that from the quote we can kind of apply it to octavia but i don't think we i I don't think we can i think it's i think it's simply 
Lysander was a little bit sheltered in in actual confrontation. And it was actually used to having other people fight his fights for him. Exactly. And this is this is a quote that is great for really anybody to hear, but specifically Lysander seems to have grown from that and has held on to the quote clearly because he's thinking about it more than a decade later and uh, obviously knows how to fight his own battles now. So, and, and going beyond that fights other people's battles for them sometimes to their, their own detriment or what have you. Like when he jumps into the, into the fighting ring to, uh, to save Cassius's life you know obviously he didn't but you know like it it, lysander has clearly been shaped by this quote yeah it it definitely has it's hmm it it is one that's very interesting because there is sort of that reliance that he has on aja here and actually one of the things that shocks me um reading back in a lot of the lysander sections especially in this book is his love and reliance upon Aja kind of as a mother. What did you make of, of that as it comes here? I think it makes sense. He's an eight-year-old kid. Is his mother even alive at this point? No, his mother's dead. Octavia is super fucking busy running the entire solar system. And Aja is basically tasked with taking care of him. So... But- I guess my my question here more is from the perspective of knowing what we know about Aja. Imagining her as a mother is, or as someone that's even comforting, you know, is so different than the Aja that we know and we've seen from the original trilogy. He never says she's comforting, though. He does at the end of this saying that when he was crying, she would hold him and has consistently kind of refrained about okay, her yeah, being like right. a motherly figure. You're, good point. Yeah, that'd be a, that'd be a fucked up mother figure. <laughs> I, don't I don't know how else to describe it that'd be pretty fucked up to have Aja as a mom yeah it's certainly not great <laughs> <laughs> and then we're woken up from our from our dream here with uh with cassius lysander and Vir- mustang of course is here and has a, a nice good like bit part inside of this where she's being friendly and we can kind of see a youthful mustang unattached to darrow and kind of the way that she is. We we move on from that, though, and he's woken from that dream by Ore, a pink, who confirms that Cassius Albalona, the last of the Balonas, is dead. And so it's time for our in-memoriam for Cassius. So... <clears throat> a toast to the eagle, who probably should have died like a dozen times before this. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> Son of a bitch. All right. Ranking for that. (laughs) The end of this chapter with Lysander comparing the loss of his parents to the loss of his father-like mentor is an incredibly powerful moment here that's that's shared with us. Again, it's another internal moment. Like you said, hopefully Lysander comes out, makes more external. But the whole the life of the man must begin line rings out as change now must occur for Lysander. What do you make of this new change that Lysander sees growing from a child to a man? He is being thrown into it, and regardless of if he was ever prepared for it or if he ever expected it, this is this is huge. It is a giant change, and it'll take him a little bit of time to kind of settle into himself, into who he is as a solo man. 
you know he is he is chewy taking the reins of han <sighs> rip han <laughs> another ben favorite <laughs> dead <laughs> ben likes dead heroes got it now that's his archetype <laughs> Anyway, we'll move in to <laughs> chapter 49, Lyria, Enemy of the State. This, these two chapters back to back are, I think, some of the most interesting in the book to me in their own right, where we get to see some of the other characters from kind of a third party's perspective. We get to kind of know these characters as they really are and sort of their morals and their lines as they exist and whether or not they're willing to cross them. I find that fascinating. And Lyria is the only vessel really that we have, maybe Ephraim who can be used to kind of cross those lines. What's the question? Well, I was looking for a nod mostly. I mean, (laughs) yeah, cool. All right. Lyria (laughs) is not having a good time. (laughs) No. When is she having a good time? Ever? (laughs) Like, never. She's like, never having a good time. I think Uh, you started basically every single Lyria section in in the past few weeks with that exact same line. I don't know if it was intentional or not. I'm I've tried to I've tried to intentionally start every Lyria episode with the same kind of general framing or idea, and it's whether or not she's having a good time. <laughs> is she ever Which, having a couple a good, weeks? She hasn't. Well, well, she was having a good time with Philippe. You know, that's, that's where true. it was like, "Dear Diary, I had the best time in," and I think that was like episode five or four or something like that, where I had that written in right there. Even then, so. she was like embarrassed to the point of not buying a train ticket. So you know. Correct, correct, yeah. She got frustrated by the subway lines, which I totally understand. <laughs> and spent, what, two days pay on a coffee. Correct, yeah. Welcome to New York. I mean, Hyperion. <laughs> exactly. So, the the Telemannus' interrogation of Lyria is an intense one. One that her life, of course, depends on. It's hanging in the balance here. We find that Cavax is alive, as we drank for at the beginning, but barely we know how that went last time, though, with the, the barely alive person. We literally just got done talking about him. So yep. don't count your eggs, PJ. Hey, it was for this week. Or your don't count your jelly beans. Um, <laughs> I ate all my jelly beans, Crossland. I never God. count my jelly beans. They taste better when you just shove them in your mouth. <laughs> But Niobe and Daxo are fierce and intelligent in these moments, picking apart the story and seeing the political consequences that belie them. Mm-hmm. I, I they're they're fierce and intelligent, yes, but they don't seem to have the nuance of dealing with fragile low colors. They're so used to dealing with people who are used to these like confrontational interrogation situations like reds like golds in general that like just confront each other like this and they get really nowhere but just terrifying lyria and that's maybe an effective way of uh, making sure that she tells the truth but it's not efficient and it's not really helpful so it's kind of it's kind of cool to see that 
shortcoming of their of their tactic. Yes, this would probably work with a gold warlord, but this is just some timid, fragile red girl, and your your good cop, bad cop tactics are just terrifying her. Yeah, especially with Niobe. I mean, Niobe is attempting to be the good cop here, which is why when Theodora steps in, it becomes very different. I thought, at, I thought Theodora large, was being bad cop. Theodora is being good cop. Or uh, Niobe. You said Niobe is being good cop. Better than Daxo. So it's bad cop, good cop, better cop? I, I would argue bad cop, badder cop, good cop. <laughs> <laughs> if you understand. Either but way, to, it's not speak, working. <laughs> correct. To speak to your point, uh, especially about what you addressed right at the beginning, fierce and intelligent, uh, but not so wise, they're compromised by anger right now. Like they're they're not making the best decisions, of course, because they are very angry about what's happened to Cavax as well as what's happened with the abduction of Pax and otherwise. So they're not making the best decisions. Totally agree with you. And of course, she's not open or receptive to those things, which is why when Theodora comes in or the good cop routine is comes in, it's really clever. I I think that it's also interesting to mentally compare her, the spy master, of course, of of mustang that we figure out a bit later against that of the duke of hands what do you make of those comparisons and the trio of interrogators that we have here i mean they're they're both roses right like yeah so and we know earlier from i think this book maybe maybe the previous book that the pinks were used in wartime sometimes as like human lie detectors Mm -hmm. so it's kind of cool to see Theodora and the Duke of Hands both used for the same like for the same reason in two very different settings find truth and press for answers and one's in more of a torture role and one's more of an like interrogation role but they they are effectively acting the same part which is pretty cool yeah it's it's so interesting, especially when you, you compare those two as parallels like you've done. It's so well put, by the way. And something that I hadn't considered is we, we actually get to compare these two on opposite sides of the coin, really. Great point about the human lie detectors and bring them in and actually having them be that. It's interesting to see when the switch flips in Theodora, right? It's, it's, it's a whole moment when she starts to instead implant assumptions into Lyria as opposed to actually listening and sort of trying to extract information, she's instead kind of presuming the next piece, which feels wrong. In yeah, a way. it is. They have so much evidence against her at this point. It's hard to entertain any other ideas, especially with emotions running so high and the evidence mounting against Lyria. It, it's hard to put that aside and really seek truth. So the fact that they do it at all is kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think what's really interesting here, too, to speak about the perspectives and sort of their implanting. Daxo's recount of what the Ash Lord could do with a red and putting him into a camp and planning all this shit is almost as paranoid as you are about Dido and the rationing. Is it paranoia if it's true? Well... <laughs> <laughs> you're giving me the shakes of like i don't i don't know how to answer that one pj because 
it starts as paranoia, and then if it does become true, that's a different question, but... Uh, I mean, yes, it's still paranoia, even if you're right, but yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Just trying to make a point. So... <laughs> <laughs> As we as we've already spoken about between uh, Daxo and Theodora, they've they've all kind of got their own assumptions. Be it the society of the Red Hand, both incorrect. It's so interesting to see both of them try to twist the narrative to get out this information that she isn't capable of knowing because she doesn't actually have it or can't can't actually give anything new because she doesn't have any additional information. Makes you kind of think about other forms of interrogation. And I want to mention something that we have both watched a lot of and a lot of our friends really enjoy which is jim can't swim you want to talk about jim can't swim for a bit dude i have been watching so much jim can't swim lately because all right i'll 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 get into it in a little bit but caitlin hasn't seen any of it so i've been watching it with her and she's falling in love with it too but jim can't swim for anybody who's not aware is a criminology and psychology youtube channel and they break down police interrogation videos that are in the public record so they they break it down they they obviously have the hindsight of the guilt or innocence of the person being interrogated and they're able to really kind of go through and break down the most granular things like as far as placement of the chairs between the uh the suspect and the interrogator and just tons of shit tons of shit it, it's super in-depth it's super 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 cool and if you haven't ever seen it check out jim can't swim on youtube i used to be uh, i used to be subscribed to their patron or patreon for a long time even after they announced that they would no longer be adding things to the to the patreon because of a change in something that youtube did i don't remember exactly what it was but even after that i'm like all right it's a dollar a month i'll still support them but they uh they do some real in-depth real cool videos i love it but that because i've been watching it all like i watched an episode today at lunch (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, i've been watching it very regularly so to see you put that in the notes was really funny but that's exactly what i was thinking about during this scene in the book yeah yeah it's that's why i specifically brought it up and originally put it in the notes is because i was like this is this is actually very much something that we've steeped ourselves in in our own right um in a very amateur way <laughs> um yeah uh, uh, that degree of interest so it's uh it's interesting to see and would highly recommend their channel to anyone and everyone else mm-hmm. this is crossland pj's recommends show given that daxo then moves to retrieve an oracle from the aquarium and affixes it to her arm it isn't attached before long long before virginia actually walks in she also points out something that she knows that it was him that broke in that it was sorry that she knows that it was Theodora that broke in deep grave that it was her that helped Darrow. Yeah. Which make it for, through. How, I didn't, I didn't arrange my pronouns there. Right. You understand what I mean? I understood you meant, but the way you had it written, I was like, ah, did 
The way I had it written was actually correct, and I just just tried to correct myself. So she also points out something. Yes, Mustang did know. That's my point. So she also pointed out something. I thought the point was that Sarah... That she knows that that it was Darrow... Yes, Theodora did know. So she also points out something that she, Mustang, knows that it was Darrow that broke into Deep Grave and that it was Theodora that helped. Just replace the pronouns with the proper nouns and the sentence makes sense. Okay. Now I got so, it. Now I yeah. understand. Yep. The, the way you had it written, I thought you meant that Mustang helped Darrow break into Deep Grave. No, no, Theodora. Okay. Yes. All right, we're back on track. We both understand where we're coming from. So something that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, Lyria has the Oracle kind of like sucking on her a little bit before it gets murdered by (laughs) Mustang. I think Lyria would have pressed for letting it stay on if she understood what it was because it's more tangible proof that she's telling the truth. And that's the one thing that she's constantly worried about in here is that they won't believe her when she says anything, but she hasn't lied in the slightest. No, which is also, I I agree with you. I think that it is strange because I think that if she did know what the Oracle was, she would be okay with it because she doesn't have a problem. But instead, not not even just okay with it. I think she would have pressed to let it continue. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that she's actively just terrified of it, though, because she doesn't want, know what it is, and, like, she's having this crazy scorpion tentacly thing growing into her arm and sucking her blood so as to understand her truth, and, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> that's terrifying, and so she doesn't really know what's about to happen or the torture that she might endure or the pain, and so it it's strange to her, but I think that it's also... It's interesting evidence for Mustang, of course, too, where this thing kind of still exists that was supposed to be removed. And Mustang obviously understands what it is. But I agree with you. I think that if Lyria had a full understanding of what an oracle is, she'd be like, fine, fucking test me. Sign me up for that lie detector. I don't give a shit. That would be Lyria's exact word for word answer. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it's it's spliced partially from a pit viper, right? Correct. Yep. So... She has some kinship with it. It was interesting that that wasn't mentioned here. Yeah, I think she's too panicky to really see it. But it wasn't even described as Pit Viper-like. It was described... No, it, I, don't think the, I don't think the description really matches what we, what we got before. Well, it was like a spider, a scorpion, and a with, with Pit Viper venom, something, something, something. I'd have to look at it again. I don't remember off the top of my head, yeah. but... If I remember, this is meant to more explain the part that actually like interfaces with body more or less is the way that it it's intentionally described. The thing, as we even talked about in our episode in the time of Golden Sun, is a disaster to imagine because there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, where it's just like it it can be whatever creepy concoction of centipede, roach, scorpion, lizard, viper, snake that you want it to be. Almost. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So before demanding that Mustang speak with Leary alone, she says, I tire of being treated like a child by my own counsel because I've chosen to obey the laws. You're no different than Victra. You mistake my morality for naivete. To a certain extent, obviously all of these folks around her fall into that as she addresses them directly, not actually treating her like the leader that she is and instead treating her like just the person that they knew 
And it's interesting because they it's almost like they think that they'll get a pass like they might have in the previous society versus the Republic as it stands. And Mustang is maybe the only truly moral person that we know. Maybe Cavax. I mean, some other people maybe fit this, but at the very least in a severe position of power. The quote, though, also applies to Darrow, doesn't it? Certainly. Absolutely. But at the same time, Darrow doesn't necessarily... He he knows enough to hide his actions because he understands that Mustang has to be the sovereign and has to call him out on things that he does wrong. So, at the very least, he he tries to hide his wrongdoings a little bit. But at that, there's really no one who wholeheartedly follows the law that they've set up even dancer he he goes behind the back of the of the republic and brings in julia albalona when that's not his jurisdiction that's not something he should be doing but he believes that it's the right thing to do but mustang's the only one that's actually following the laws and it's really kind of funny to think about it that way it's stupid i just feel so (laughs) angry for her you know what i mean like yeah it's it's so frustrating that she gets she is consistently this moral person who actually stands for what the republic stands for and everyone else is kind of just skating by breaking rule by rule as though it's casual and she's kind of letting them get away with it because they're family or they're close friends and man i'd be so angry if i were her yeah i mean what but what can you do here what can you do here and what can you do in general are two different questions. Which okay, what, what can you do in this in that scenario? Not not here specifically within the book, but here as in in that mindset of Mustang. Understanding that like nobody's really taking this seriously like she is. I, I think that becomes then a point of making an example of people feels like the wrong way to say this, but at the same time, like if you break the law, you break the law. Treat everyone e- equally under the law. I mean, she tried to do that with Darrow, and he killed the leader of her, <laughs> Fuck. Like, her guard. So, well, yeah, yeah, but you you continue to try to apply it evenly, and maybe you get better guards. Uh, who's better than Darrow? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who could best him? Apollonius, maybe. Lysander, of course. Lysander, of course. Yes, there we go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I mean, maybe Diomedes. Who knows? Atlas? Romulus? I have a feeling those aren't going to be the answer. Well, I'm just spitting shit at you at this point. <laughs> Tharsis? Tharsis. There we go. The Ash Lord? Be Tharsis. Atalantia? Ah. Julia Albalona? Wow. <laughs> who would have thought? Curveball. Curveball. Crazy razor wielder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. Ah, it fuck. I feel I feel Virginia. I feel Mustang here. It sucks. Yeah, it does. So with that, we move into chapter 50, which is another Lyria chapter. Of course, it complements this other one. Uh, It's called Lyria Mother, of course. And we're talking now to Mustang kind of one on one holiday still in the room, of course, but it's mostly meant to be a one on one conversation less i mean it's still an interrogation for information but it's less of an interrogation right right it's meant to be more of an honest aristotelian conversation based in pathos logos and ethos so Mm. 
Lyria makes a compelling confession as to why she came back to ensure that Liam would grow up with a real role model to disprove the lies that are said about both Reds and the Gammas alike. I think it's a, a very strong and compelling argument and one that obviously sways Virginia as she realizes that she's not bullshitting about what's what's going on after Lyria kind of spitballs to brief but not complete answers. It's man, these last two chapters are total heartstring chapters. And for me, Lyria's confession here is deep, heartfelt and hard to chew through especially when we look at Ephraim's chapter Mm -hmm. yeah it's not only convincing but it's also definitely true like Lyria has proven time and time and time again that her Liam is her motivation for a whole lot of self-preservation things like her her reason for existing is making sure Liam doesn't live a shit life going forward so it, it it's a good point and it's a convincing point, but it's also a perfectly true point that she makes. Yeah. It's just, it's also like sadly, sadly tragic. How do you think Lyria would be without Liam, without that like need to be a role model? Do you think that she would give in to a lot of these things? I think she would have given up a long time ago. I don't think she would have fought to like fought to live. Man, it sucks. It sucks to say that about like a main character. But I, I don't disagree with you. No, I, I don't think with, without Liam, I don't think she would have run to try to uh, flag down Cavex. It's it's an especially apt comparison when you think about her to Ephraim, right? When you think about the fact that Ephraim really doesn't have anyone to consider it, or actually he does have people that he should be thinking about this way, but he, he has not actively thought about them this way. If you If you take... The two of them, and I, I didn't put this in the later notes, but it's something we'll definitely talk about when we get there. But Ephraim's Leah for the or Liam for the most part is Volga, but he doesn't he doesn't recognize that he actually has a Liam until it's too late, until he's made the mistakes. Meanwhile, Lyria obviously has Liam and stands by him and understands and is able to ingest that because she's in tune with kind of her her feelings in that way makes the two of them an interesting dichotomy when thinking about characters and the way that they deal with grief. Yeah, I I can, I can see where you're coming from. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because I think who their Liam is to put it in your terms um, requires them to be cared about and to be the, the focus of their feelings. So I, I I think Volga could be Ephraim's Liam, but she's not because he doesn't think of it that way. Correct. Should be. Should, should be should his be. Liam. I'm with you. By all intents. And especially by the end, well, by like the midpoint of chapter 51, which I think should be two chapters. Uh, but by the midpoint of chapter 51, that feels established when she leaves that he finally comes to this realization when she doesn't show up and whatnot we'll talk about that in a bit we'll we'll, let's get back to the interrogation the sovereign's interrogation here is far more calm of course like we said it's a conversation and there's so much like great technology involved especially as harmony comes in and they're we're seeing like the hollow cams fly around and the different visual visualizations of the marketplace the blight burn or the blight blighter that Ephraim is wearing to hide his face in the restaurant and everywhere else. It's great. It's like those uh, anti-paparazzi jackets. Yeah. Like, have you seen those at all? No. So it's this, 
it's this specific like reflective material that looks just kind of like a like a white pat and white and black pattern jacket but if you hit it with flash it it just obscures every it's so reflective that it obscures the entire picture hmm. um so they make like hoodies out of it that people can wear so like celebrities wear them to not actually get any good paparazzi pictures of them because it's really just smart obscures the entire photo if it's taken with a flash yeah that makes a ton of sense yeah so it's it's hmm. like that but more of a more of a digital thing okay all right that's that's really interesting interesting to take that tech and extrapolate it out to or move it backwards to where we are right now mm-hmm. also the lion in the in the photo is Dude. just icing on top of the fucking cake yeah <laughs> that was that was some cold ass like serial serial killer shit from Ephraim. <laughs> like obviously done mockingly but he knows exactly <sighs> what he's doing he knows exactly what he's doing. There were so many lines of defense and so many so many layers of protection for him. Do you think he ever expected to be found out? Or do you think that was just him fucking with them? <sighs> hmm. Because ideally, ideally, those credit card transactions never get found anyway. Right? Right. I think it was him fucking with them i don't think that he wants to be found out and also those credit card transactions were traced back to like weren't traced back to him because it was a prepaid debit card effectively with a limited balance on it but i think that he was doing that intentionally like the line was intentionally that he knew that this was going to be reviewed at a certain point so as to not throw off the scent but recognize that he knew that he was going to be tracked yeah you're right it's it's tough though. I mean, fuck. This is it's so interesting to see the like reverse forensics of a of a heist, right? Like super cool visualization. Yeah. Super fucking cool. And then of course, Virginia puts it together. The syndicate is the one who's abducted her son, neither of the two parties that Niobe or Daxo were chasing down or Theodora. Uh, she gives a brief backstory on the syndicate as a whole and explains the rise of the queen of the syndicate after their internal civil war. What did you make of this? I think that it's a fairly interesting tidbit that kind of fills in the point from Golden Sun when we first hear of the syndicate to now. Um, did we already know that the syndicate's logo was an octopus? I don't I feel think like we, so. I, I think I, that that was this book. Okay. For some reason, I I remember something about that, but it could be just me making shit up. Then, at the end of this chapter here, they finally nab the connection, their lead. It's the omnivore that Lyria speaks about, something that no one else was able to get out of her, which, of course, was owned by the Perius Insurance Company, registered in 741 PCE, Ephraim T. Horn. Done fucked up. Yeah, you mentioned that nobody was able to get that out of her before, and she just assumed they had it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it wasn't like she was hiding that information. She just, on a whim, decided to mention it. Like, yeah, you could probably find them, find the fingerprints, assuming they already had it. So that was fortunate of her to mention. Yeah. Right. I I guess my point was is the only reason that she might have even felt forthcoming is because she felt like she was a part of something. She was trying to solve yeah. the problem as opposed to being, Ask you questions. know, tortured, interrogated. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You're right. Good point. 
you're more forthcoming when uh, when you're let in that way. But yeah, it's um, oof, the omnivore and uh, the whole like, well, yeah, I know him. He's uh, he's my brother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this does Just, prove like Ephraim should have killed her. Uh, yeah, he tried as he recants. Yep. Again, fuck. All right, so chapter fifty-one, our last chapter of the week, Skyhook, Ephraim T. Some fuck. I can't actually remember. Why can't I remember his Horn. name? Horn. Nakamura. Horn. Wow, I literally just said it. Why you did. I, why did I fuck that up? From T. Horn. So, Ephraim's reflection here, his job well done feels earned in a way when he's kind of looking out over the skyline with the dawn cresting from his uh, hotel room, his cozy penthouse. It, it's so strange to flip from these perspectives, one of Lyria the person robbed to the villain right next to each other. It feels almost like the end of the movie end of a movie or the start of the end of a movie. Yeah. I'm curious if these feelings are genuine or if it's like his disposition is entirely born out of Zolodone use and the sort of side effects of prolonged usage. Hmm. If that makes sense. Like I'd be curious to see what he would actually be like without any Zolodone. Yeah, as as though he had quit cold turkey and was no, cleaning it stuff. as if it had never existed. Because we we still don't necessarily know if there's long-lasting, like, effects of, like, prolonged usage. Sure, yeah. So knowing that even if he's not actively under the effects of it right now, it's it still could be fucking with his mood and his feelings. That's true. But I I think that there's also something that feels like it has a finality to it in this moment where he's like, this was, he actually has, per what you were talking about last episode, he is kind of treating this like his last job, like he's done and he's ready to go on vacation, hang out with Volga, go see the sights, you know, like he's, he's very much trying to retire. So why be cold about everything then? Well, because he's a cold asshole. Yeah. He's still he he hasn't changed despite his like mood going into retirement. I think maybe if he were able to go into retirement, he might change his tune a little bit, but that's fair. Good point. A little bit. Good point. His reflections, of course, as you've already pointed out, are dark and pained, even wrapped up in the logic of the Zolodone. They they still have this kind of tinge of of pain that he's trying to bury by chewing on these pills as often as he can. He's obviously messed up. He's killed some of his close compatriots and friends, and he only has a single friend in in Volga. And um, yeah, interesting to big interesting quotes. to see her as a friend after constantly, explicitly saying that they're not friends. Yeah, without a doubt, it's terrible the way that he's treated her this whole time. And now he's like, "I'm at the end. I'm done. Now we can be friends, maybe, or that we are friends, even." Mm-hmm. And and I think that's you know, the truth. I think he truly does see them as friends, but he was so often pushing against it as a means of not because they work so closely together in a very, very lethal environment. I think it made the most sense to try to make sure that they didn't see each other as friends, even though he probably did see her as a friendly face and as basically the closest person in his life so yeah i i would agree with you and i'd say that some of that is him protecting her and himself and himself in, insulating himself yeah mm-hmm. 
this this section actually is just I, I it's a tough section to peel apart because there is there's so much to the Ephraim Volga relationship as it's exposed over this entire section at the beginning. We get this kind of moment of of like a breakup of sorts of their friendship and sort of a dissolution. And in the middle, we have Ephraim being hopeful that despite the argument, they'll come back together. And at the end, Ephraim is willing to sacrifice anything to ensure that Volga is safe and allowed to live a life that she deserves. And that makes for a a complicated narrative for him. Yeah. I mean, nothing about Ephraim's life right now is simple. Everything Mm -hmm. is complicated. And it's... It has to be, for better or for yeah. worse. Even though he, all he wants is for it to be simple now. Right, right. Do you make anything of the news stories that are on the TV, of course, uh, that, we're, that we're hearing over the course of this? Did they pose any questions for you? I know. Uh, what, what are the... Oh, there's the, there's the one about the obsidians going missing, right? Yep. I'm curious if they're being abducted or if they're just kind of absconding on their own and just kind of going going missing on their own volition. It'll be uh, interesting to see what that's all about because I'm sure it'll come up. Like This is clearly a sort of foreshadowing Easter egg kind of deal. But I. But I also the Reaper was spotted on Mars, so... He's not on Mars, though. Right? right, right. That can't be true. Huh. I didn't catch that one. Interesting. Unless, unless the timeline is fucky. I can promise you that the timeline is not fucky. Okay. I'll sort that out for you. Hmm. Hmm. There's two Darrow's. <laughs> Darrow has managed to clone himself. Hey, worse has happened. No, worse I, I guess happened. I I guess my point here is more to point to like a semi anecdotal nature as it relates to news where wherein like should we even trust these newscasts, especially when Ephraim also makes mention of there's no mention of the abduction, which was a huge deal, of course, if you were around it at all or if you saw anything. There were a number of people that died in the aftermath one way or another. Three hover bikers were sucked in and killed. It's all just kind of gone completely under the radar. Yeah. Without any kind of formal announcement. So it kind of makes a question what the media control looks like. We know that Quicksilver, of course, had a grip hold on uh, on media and broadcast, but it's interesting. The jackal from the grave is controlling the media. Oh boy, wouldn't that be nasty? How would that even work? Ghost programming, I don't know. What? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Volga, <laughs> Volga and Ephraim's fight that we've already talked about and struggle is an aggressive intervention, of course, on her part. And honestly, one that's been a long time coming for Ephraim. But like... Ephraim is just harsh and fucking cruel when he mocks her about the truth of what was done about the abduction. And he's just being honest. Like he's, he's not being more than he's being honest, but Volga is so offended by that honesty and explains why she's done what she's done for Ephraim, that Ephraim is family and everything that she's done is for him because she had, he had her back when she needed it most. It's all just a, culmination and explosion of emotions over the course of this book what mm. would you what it leave you feeling well it's kind of overdue you know this kind of fallout but it's certainly sad to see volga like this uh she's loyal to a fault and it, it's it's crazy to think that she's kept that loyalty up as long as she did 
even with how how much she understands his uh his pushback on her like she she basically reads it all back like fuck off volga whatever she understands entirely what's going what's going on in his head and the fact that she still decides to be loyal and there for him all the time is kind of astonishing so i think overdue to see this fight happen but at the same time like cool to see to see volga respond to and understand all of the slights against her and still be that loyal of course especially it's it's so tough because after she leaves the way that ephraim just kind of coldly rolls over it like it's nothing as their story together ends so that so as he describes it's just it's pain i mean that could also be either active or long-lasting effects of the zolodone as well i i really i want to see ephraim with trig and see the the emotional differences between the two and then see him after trig for a while and then see him after he picks up heavy Zolodone usage and just sure. see what those differences are and how much has changed and what he would be like without it. Got it. Yeah, <sighs> man, it's, it's tough. So moving on, we'll move into his escape plan away from the, the penthouse suite. We visit one of the many docks that are outlying inside of the stars the ship that he is going to be taking is called the Eurydice Wind. The name of the ship, of course, is named after, well, of course, do you know this? Do you not know this? Is the lover of Orpheus. So Eurydice and Orpheus were lovers in Greek mythology. While there's a huge story behind the whole damn thing, it's easy enough to explain that Orpheus is singing a song of mourning for her death when she's bitten by a snake and killed, unfortunately. And I'd like to think that that fits with the theme of Ephraim, that he too is living kind of this mournful life after the loss of Trig, his love. It it just feels very fitting that this be his ship to escape back to, or to Earth, where even Ephraim's from. Yeah. Or sorry, not Ephraim, not but Ephraim, rather Trig. Trig is from. Yeah. yeah. It is very fitting, and it's gorgeous. Like, all of these sort of hidden historical literary references being tucked in is they're all beautifully done it's really cool to see i'm glad someone appreciates them pj thank you i'm not thinking you i'm thinking pierce fuck off (laughs) i'm just kidding yeah you didn't write this fucking book no i didn't i didn't you're right good call i'm sorry my bad my bad my bad my bad but would you've gotten it if i didn't say anything absolutely not right okay cool (laughs) i'll take i'll take that credit and dust off my shoulders real quick all right cool move on it it is really well done i i like the inclusion here of course it's not fully encompassing of the the myth but i think it's it's good it's interesting ephraim finally comes to the conclusion that volga isn't coming and realizes something eerie that the ship he's on now is empty in the lounge sits holiday and the rabbit lyria Ephraim realizes that he's completely fucked and Holiday, of course, is applying a shit ton of pressure. Yeah. I think it was interesting to bring Lyria into this scene because it would have been way easier not to. But I think it's smart because this way Ephraim really can't talk his way out of it, you know? No, no, there's no alibi. There's no like, well, I wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about because she can clearly identify him. You're right. Exactly. Right. So just letting her take along was 
both strategic and probably cathartic for her. Mm -hmm. Though maybe a little bit terrifying. Without a doubt. There are a number of incredible quotes here that F from kind of just unleashes over the course of this chapter. But the one that stuck with me this read through for whatever reason is dead kids are the loose change of war. And oh my fucking God, is that the truth? I mean, yeah, he's not wrong at all. And he he backs it up with a ton of just uh, evidence, you know? And it's not said evil or maliciously or anything like that, but he does kind of say it to justify an evil act, so kind of have to take it for what it's worth in that respect. It's it's atrocious, especially when you consider the sort of, like, things that he was saying to Volga the night before. It's just, Mm -hmm. all of it's squirmy. Yeah. Screaming it's down right. It's clear that he he's always manipulating his audience whenever he talks. Right. Exactly. Lyria's attempt to reason at, at reason, I think, here is very noble, correct, and understandable. Not that it, of course, is going to change Ephraim's mind as it relates to his loss of Trig, as we well know that nothing can change the way that he thinks about it, but Lyria directly compares the two of them and their outlooks, and largely I think she's right. We've been talking about this, and I mentioned it earlier, of course, for a long time, but now she's really able to come out and say it. We basically have a choice to exist in the pain and misery of the past, or we have the ability to move past it and push through it. Lyria's tried to move forward, and that's why she was able to let let that like brief pan flash of happiness into her life with Philippe. Meanwhile, Ephraim has constantly rejected it, like we talked about with Volga, where he consistently tells her to fuck off and other things like that. I think that if nothing else in this story, that is a moment of absolutely brilliant writing as these two characters parallel themselves, intertwine, and then untwine themselves here at the end where they end up on kind of opposite sides of the spectrum. And then finally, by a combination of a lack of Zolodone and Lyria's pressure that she's applying by opening up and expressing this kind of honest moment, Ephraim cracks and all of his emotions flood out and he shifts for the first time in the entire story. I think it's kind of a beautiful way to, and I, I know there's more to the book, obviously, but it, it feels like an emotional wrap up on Ephraim, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is kind of the emotional climax for him, even if even if there's more to it. So, it was a good fitting end to that sort of uh, chapter, I guess, and hopefully. I hope it doesn't get broken back open again. Sure. But who totally. Knows, who knows if it will. I mean, if you if you think about the way that this book is laid out, we've got a little bit over 100 pages left. If we mm-hmm. assume 110, that means we get like 27 pages of character. So not right. a whole lot of ground left to cover. No, not a ton. Even though it's over two episodes. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the if information difference about the queen, again, is interesting. Do you have any like guesses or thoughts as to who you think the queen is we talked about this earlier but god it's like aries all over again man (laughs) i i think dido though okay so you you stand by the dido i'm gonna stand by the dido idea okay all right all right we get a brief mention here as well of uh victra's maternity armor and of fucking course (laughs) she has maternity armor because jesus christ yeah only victra would commission something like that i can't imagine they had it ready to go like she had to get that commissioned right without a doubt there's no way there's no way yeah well maybe i don't know Hmm. no there's no way they just had maternity armor that it's not a real thing fair enough fair enough so 
with with that in mind, the the next step, of course, is how do how can they position Ephraim, make him make a move to to help them? And what did they have against Ephraim? Of course, it's it's Volga. They caught Volga at a zoo, of course, at because she views that as as her hedonistic trait is that she goes to a zoo. She doesn't go to a bar. She doesn't go to a strip club. She goes to a zoo because she felt sad, and so she went to a zoo to just hang out and enjoy <laughs> it and like pay a little bit more money because it probably wasn't the afternoon rate and she's just trying to have a good time and she gets jailed because she's just trying to deal with her her feelings of loss no that's not why she was jailed she was jailed because she kidnapped two children and sold them to a crime organization well there is that (laughs) that's why she was jailed (laughs) i thought i was making a good point fair yes but no like she's perfectly guilty in all of this but she is mostly being used as leverage for Ephraim mm-hmm. which you know, uh, is kind of the best she could hope for right yeah it's damn it <laughs> damn it uh, Ephraim's quote here too is is especially vital I think she followed me like a puppy from the day we met all she gave me was love she never asked for it in return since she was born she's been a slave a monster kicked down by everyone and then she found me and I treated her just the same I feel sick and ah fuck Ephraim for realizing this so late come on yeah. dude come but on I think there's something to be said that the Ephraim clearly didn't treat her that well but he didn't treat anybody well and he didn't treat her more poorly because of who she was or what she was and it seemed like volga at least understood that she wasn't being discriminated against in ephraim's eyes she was just another person that he was a dick to it had nothing to do with the fact that she was a crow oh fuck you're right though i just just wanted to like tear my heart out and put it out for volga to (laughs) eat at this point well i mean that is probably her daily meal it probably as a, is. As an obsidian, the beating heart of another living human. My heart is yours, Volga. And then, of course, to end the chapter, a deal is struck. Ephraim earns him and Volga pardons for rescuing the children if he's able to complete the task. And if he fails, runs, or defects, she, being Mustang, will kill him personally. If she doesn't, the Reaper or Severa will, and he will shit himself in his bed, as they say. Who do you think would be the... If you got to choose who hunts, hunts you down and kills you who, do you, who do you pick? I mean, you pick Mustang, but if you're saying I have to pick between... So I'm going to add in Victra here. So okay. the Reaper, Severa, or Victra, I'd pick Darrow. Yeah, Darrow's the least likely to play with his food. <laughs> right, that's exactly my thought. Like... Oh no! At the very least, I'm gonna go out decently, I guess. So that's it for this week. Jesus, this was actually a decently long episode, uh, all told. So with that, we've got PJ's predictions. We do. Uh, so first one: Does the Duke of Hands already know that Ephraim is compromised? I think yes. I think he's got enough spies around that. Uh, he and the rest of the syndicate know that he's been approached by Mustang. Okay. All right. Does Lysander join the Rim War forces? No, but I think he wants to. Okay. I, I think he mostly chooses not to because he doesn't trust that he'd be kept safe with, within their ranks, if that okay. makes sense. I, I think he understands that all of them have bla- bad blood against his family, so... He wishes them well and does what he can to fuck off. Sure. Does Kavax survive? 
is your final question for yourself. Yep, I think he does. He's too too much of a beefcake to die. <laughs> oh, beefcake. Oh, poor beefcake. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, we move into next week. Next week, we'll be reading chapters 52 through 57. This is going to be our penultimate episode of Iron Gold. PJ, we're almost to the last book, the fifth book, not the last book, but you know. I mean, last book for now. Right, right. So, <laughs> wow. Wild. Wild. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, of course, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. Also, check out all the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, our social. It's all in one convenient spot. We've got a lot going on in the month of June, including a number of guest spots and other shows and things like that. We also have a giant contest going on on Instagram for a subterranean press copy of dark age there are two different options for entry one joining our patreon and commenting on that instagram post with your username or two leaving us a review on itunes and commenting your username for that review on the post you can check out all the details on our june 1st post with the giveaway you can see it very clearly if you go to that instagram page absolutely we do speaking of the patreon want to take a second today to thank all of our new patrons This is our first time actually speaking most of their names out loud, so bear with us a little bit. Yeah, it's first time. It's really cool. We're very excited. So our new barbacks at the $3 tier, we're very appreciative of everything that you do for the show. That would be Cassie Hurley, Donna Bull, Slip Al Rath, Ivana M, Kyle Lieberman, good old friend of the show, That Juicy Juice, or Josh P., Josh Polis, Kevin Friday, and Ben McDonald. Thank you so much. We have one person at the bartender tier, Abe Lincoln Froman. He left the review that we talked about last week. He did. Slash two days ago. <clears throat> and to our fabulous mixologists, Baby Theo, Zeph Hawaiian, sorry, excuse me, Daddy Zeph Hawaiian, Doris Dvorkian, and Dandelo. And thank you all that are listening for your support. It really means the world to us. We're stoked. Of course, and can't wait to uh, to see where this all goes. We will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.